out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the bassist. It is the one and only Bruce Thomas, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Played with Elvis Costello, he was one of the attractions, as well as people like Billy Bragg, Suzanne Vega and uh, Tasman Archer, and lots of others as well, and has written several books as well. But anyway, this is the interview, and after, well, it's sort of quite a long introduction and chat, which gets edited out, because it's frankly, we just go completely off-road, really, and um, start talk, talking about various conspiracy theories. You don't need to hear them. Uh, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Bruce, what was that musical awakening with you? Tell us everything. Tell us now. I predate the Beatles. I mean, I go to the pre-Beatles British beat boom. Yes. So, so at that point, the first band I ever saw was Cliff Richard and the Shadows, which is why, which made a big impression on me, and which is why I, I basically my signature bass was a, was the you know the, um, the red Fender Precision with the tortoiseshell scratch pick like Jet Harris played. Yeah. So. That that's where that came from, and so the pre pre Beatle bands were, you know, there were still good bands like Johnny Kidd and the Pirates with Mick Green and and so on, and then of course like the um, then the Beatle boom was was when everything got very interesting. Yes, you know, and were, were your parents kind of of a musical? Lean. Yeah, my dad was a classical violin, not profe- not professional. He would have been a professional, but the war intervened. Um, he's a he was a classical violinist. My mum was a self-taught piano player, and and um, so they were both capable of knocking out a tune. Yeah. Yes. And did you have any brothers or sisters who kind of had? I've got in- a sister, but um, who only became musical a few years ago, and now plays in. Um, in samba bands. <laughs> On percussion. Yeah. Everyone loves yeah. that, don't they? I think Norwich has a samba band like that. So oh, they're all over the place. You, you can't get away yeah. from them at all. And yeah, I mean, yeah. with, with Bowie and Lemmy, because they were the, virtually the same year, well, they were born just a year mm. before you, they always mention Little Richard as their kind of go-to person. Were you well, at all? Yeah, that I've, I, in my... Um, in, if you want the, like a deep, more detailed exposition of all this, it, I, I did write a, a sort of memoir called Rough Notes a few years ago. And in fact, Little Richard appears because I, as a child, I used to go to my um, grandmother's house and um, in Bradford and stay there for a week or two in the school holidays. And there was a fair that used to set up on a patch of land not far from where she lived with, uh, you know, the Godjams, waltzes, all that kind of thing. And, um, uh, of course, they used to have um, a record booth on the waltzes and blasting out uh, the music of the day, which is... Um, and I did, I did have that kind of heart-stopping, jaw-dropping moment, even when I was about, I don't know, six or seven or something. And and and, um, and I, I, I remember saying to the guy in charge, I said, 
Mister, who's what's that? You know, who's that? What's that? And and um, he said, that's Little Richard's son. You know, and I thought, I've never heard anything like it since. Yes. You know, I've never heard another voice like that ever, or one that had that impact because it's still, it's still pretty unbeatable. I mean, McCartney had a good, gives it a good go, doesn't he? But um, nothing like Little Richard. No, it's that. It's what they. What do they call it? Melisma or something or coloratura, that thing that that black singers tend to have where they can sing about ten different um, notes on one syllable. You know, oh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> just like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, not 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 really like that, but you you get my drift. I do. I do. So Mariah when you... Carey does it. They yes, all do it. they all overdo it now because they can do it with auto tune. But um, it was beyond. Stevie Stevie Wonder was pretty good at it. Yeah, and um, Paul Rogers got good at it. Paul Rogers, I find I found it was like um, vocal gymnastics at times. In the, especially in the nineties, yeah. there was a little bit like wow. Every... Depends if it's done with soul or if it's done just to show off. You know, yeah. If it's if it's if it's if it's just expression that's bursting to come out, you can tell the difference. Because at that stage of you, sort of that period of your childhood, you, you know, obviously, you know, rock and roll, psychedelic rock hadn't even been invented, which is amazing. But, you know, so most people who get, get musical either go in a slightly folk direction or jazz kind of direction. Which way did you go? Well, in a in, uh, covers band. Well, in, the, in your early years, you know, those real, you know, learning to play the bass. Well, I, I didn't start playing till I left school. And... Um, at that point, I was in um, I was in a covers band, just doing um, first of all, just doing the the pop hits of the day, like you really got me and things like that. I, at my insistence, we did a Bob Dylan song that was about as you know as rarefied as we got. But then, when I joined a, a proper band that turned pro, then we were doing um, we were doing a couple of originals, but it was it was. More, it was better chosen R and B covers. I was in a my band that I came to London with was had Paul Rogers on vocals and Mick Moody, who was later with White Snake on guitar. Yes. So we were we were pretty good, and um, and we did a lot of um, a lot of you know the remember the old Pie R and B label, the red and yellow one, and Chess and things like that. We did a lot of that kind of catalogue. Yes, yeah. it was, um, I guess it was, I, guess, I mean, this was the Roadrunners you're talking about, which were from yes, it is, yeah. 60, 62 to 66, so you must have seen that whole birth of the Be- the Beatles in going into the world that was psychedelic yeah, rock within that. I, I saw the Beatles, <laughs> so uh, I not only saw the birth of them, I actually saw them live, so... Um... Did you ever see the Rockin' Vickers with Lemmy? <laughs> you probably didn't, did you? No. But there no. must have been a lot of bands that, that suddenly spoke. No, there were a, there were there were three theatres in Stockton on Tees and every week a package show came through one of them. So it, it, you know, I would see the Kinks, the swinging blue jeans, you know, the the Stones, uh, the Beatles, they all were all playing just the local ABC cinema type gigs, you know. Yes. And did you the support ones. And did you play at the cavern supporting the Beatles? No, no. 
uh, we um, the attraction Elvis and the attractions played at the renamed cavern when it became Eric's, right? Or or when it moved next door or whatever. But I've I've never played to the at the cavern, no, no. Or, and or, what um, and what happened to the the um the Roadrunners? Did it you know in '66? Well, we, you... we we came to London and um, basically. Um, where we ended, where we ended up living in Golders Green, there was a guy down the road called Paul Kossoff, who was a guitarist. And eventually, um, Paul Rogers and Kossoff um, went off and formed Free. Mick Moody went back to um, up to the north, and I then went and um, joined a band with Pete Bardens, the keyboard player. Yes. Who was in Cam whose later band was Camel and whose previous band was um Shotgun Express with Mick Fleetwood and Peter Green. My so, god, that's one hell of a family yeah. tree there, isn't it? Let's face oh, it. Oh, there's a hell of a family tree there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And was your bass yeah, playing changing a lot at this stage because obviously there was a lot there was a lot of musical there were, you know how these things work. You sort of you don't make it go steadily up uphill when you progress you sort of you sort of make a quantum jump then plateau then a, a jump and plateau and i think i was with a short-lived psychedelic band that went and played a club gig in the south of france for a few weeks and just playing every night and things like that lifted lifted the play we eventually got sent home for being too loud but i remember when i did the audition for pete barden's and he'd had people in and and um, I, I was playing. He just said I wasn't even playing with anybody or to anything. He said just play the bass. So I just played something, you know. And he, he said, "You've got the job. You're the first person I've heard who can swing." <laughs> <laughs> nice. Which means you know, means there was a bit of momentum in it, you know. You know, uh, just uh, I think I was just doing like a walking bass line or something like that, you know. And he said, "That's it. That's fine." You know, because you can't, you can teach notes, but you can't teach timing. Yes, absolutely. I know then I, I, a few years ago, I did an interview with Fast Eddie and he said before his motorhead days, he got a gig, you know, just playing. I think it was Curtis Knights, who was a blues. And he said, you just played all the time. And that's where you really learn the craft. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. One gig's worth a hundred rehearsals. Yes. You know, do you know, I was in a band with Lemmy. Oh, were you? Yeah. My God. That... Yeah. There was, uh, there was, uh, it was during the time when all these um, these entrepreneurs wanted to be pop managers, you know, like basically rich kids. Yes. Wanted to get on. The, and there was one guy who was a, you know, uh, heir to a Greek shipping fortune or something. He lived in a, the nicest house in Chelsea and and... You know, all these bands would find these uh, entrepreneurs, and the first thing they do would would be able to get a, a, a thousand quid cash so they can go and buy some clothes. <laughs> and uh, I remember everybody, all that you could you could tell who'd found somebody. Somebody would suddenly turn up in a full length leather coat or something. Oh, I found a manager. Have you? <laughs> but um, anyway, yeah, it was an odd combination. Let let me on guitar, me on me on bass. Some some other a Scottish guy who was in one of those 
I don't know, Glen, average white band type groups in the end, or Glencoe or somebody like, like that. And, and we, we, we learned two songs, got the money for the clothes, and then split up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, but I remember seeing Lemmy there just sort of, you know, grinning, because <laughs> we all knew what was going on. Nice. Well, yes. Yeah, I, it would have been, yeah. But he was playing guitar at the time, not bass, so... That's right. Um, I think when but it's just one of those anecdotes that I can dine out on from time to time. Yes, as I'm doing now. Absolutely, you've got to slip <laughs> those ones in. You can't. You can't let that one. Yeah, slip. there's. Uh, so, there's. I mean, there's. There's so many of them. That's why I. I you know, a neighbour of mine said you should just write all this down. You know, so I did basically because there's a lot of them. You know. <laughs> yes. But when the other person I remember sort of in my early teen period being very obsessed with Al Stewart and that was another person that you right. you sort of wandered yeah. into into his life, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, well I I did a couple of albums with Al, Al Stewart and that with um, Rick Wakeman on on piano and Tim Rennick on guitar. Right. And yeah, so you know it was the uh, it was a couple of the old Bowie boys. It was, and this was was it was the first album you did together, Orange, or was it? It might have been. And I don't know which came before Orange or Time Changes or or Past, Present, and Future. I mean, that was the second one because because obviously it Orange. It must have been Orange then. It was the first one because because during the sixties, I remember that very folk period, and even you had Rod the Mod, didn't you? Rod Stewart, who was very folky. Well, Rod Stewart played with was with Pete Pete Barnes and Mick Fleetwood and Peter Green. He was the singer. Yes. So, yeah. So that was a very illustrious lineup. But um, yeah, before. Um, yeah, I mean, I, at that time, this was the, when Tim and I were in Quiver, in the before the Sutherland Brothers, in a band called Quiver, sort of soft rock band like Poco we were, or you know, um, and um, I used to do all the folk sessions, hundred, you know, I mean, that was another thing that was happening back in the day. Anybody that could strum an acoustic guitar and knock a song together got a record deal. Yeah. You know, and um, there were some that were good, bad and indifferent. I mean, Ian Matthews was one of the good ones. And um, but there were Bridget St. John and Jonathan Kelly and, you know, Uncle Tom Cobley and all. Yes. What about uh, Keith so Christmas? It was, busy Did you... all the time. it was a session. A lot, it was pretty. Uh, well, the week didn't go by without us doing somebody's album. Did you come across oh. Keith Christmas at that stage? Yes, I did. Yeah. Yes, because um, yes, I'm he's not still... sure if I did his album or not, but I, 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 he was. Um, uh, yes, I, I know who you mean. Yeah, I've done an interview with Bridget. She was. She's still going Bridget strong. Bridget St John. Yeah. yeah, and I know they all ended on up on John Peel's uh, record label Dandelion, didn't they? Which kind of didn't last. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And with that period, because you'd obviously sort of experienced some part of that kind of 60s change, you know, the early years, then the, the psychedelic mm. period of the 67, and then you had the, the end of the party, so to speak, you know, as, as kind of people like Hendrix, Morrison and Joplin all died, and obviously yeah. Brian Jones had died. What was that feeling like as, as somebody who'd experienced the, like the birth of, you know, modern music? I and, remember, I remember... Um, 
because my favourite, I listened to, uh, I had a friend with a fantastic stereo and we used to get a bit stoned and listen to, listen to, um, listen to Sergeant Pepper and White Album, Abbey Road and stuff like that. And, um, but my favourite band of the psychedelic era was Spirit. Right. Um, and, um, uh, I didn't really didn't feel I tell you what it morphed into for me it suddenly morphed into that James Taylor Carol King era of the 70s where it was all that blooming um you know that's that sensibility kind of confessional um, singer songwriter a sing songwriter sing writers yeah they were and um and um with the LA the LA laid back session crew on not the wrecking crew there was another 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 you know leland sklar and and russ kunkel and leon russell and those guys as i as i yeah as i um sarcastically say trucking down the freeway of my stoned and moody mind to see my little denim lady in la (laughs) musicians yes um and and I was aching for something, you know. Well, it was the precursor to the Eagles and all that stuff, wasn't it? And, and, so, did you um, ever go to Lauren, Lauren, Laurel Can- Canyon? I did go. I have been to Laurel Canyon, but not not from a musical perspective, but because I um, secured accommodation with a young lady for a week or two in Laurel Canyon. Right. So. So, um, you weren't hanging out with Joni Mitchell and... in the music business. But no, she wasn't. A, she was in in an executive position. Um, when I did um, when I did the first my first ever US tour with us Sutherland Brothers and Quiver supporting Elton John, I I hung on an extra week and um, in in Los Angeles for a bit of R and R. Yes, but. Uh, but going back to the um, James Taylor thing, I, when I was aching for a, something a bit more red-blooded, um, I saw probably one of the best two gigs I've ever seen in my life. The first one being The Who in Glasgow when Quiver supported them, which was just probably the best gig I've ever seen. We supported them on a tour. The second best gig I've ever seen was um, Jay Giles' band debuted gig at the Lyceum in London with uh, Peter Wolf and and all, all that, and that that was just you know uh, that was what every, even everybody in the business was just went for it. It was one it was one of those gigs where you wanted to run home, you know. <laughs> Yes. He couldn't walk, he couldn't get a cab, he just wanted to run, and run and jump every so often. <laughs> it was that... Um... Um, but that was... that. Oh, thank goodness they turned up, you know, to um, break that, that soporific spell. Yes, there was that period. What did you... Because you mentioned Camel earlier, but then there was this sort of... Because I've got a brother who was, you know, he's seven years old, and he was into that world of... You know, yes, Genesis, Wishbone, Ash, Barkley, James Harvest. Yeah, did, I've did, got friends of a prog, prog freak. Yeah. And and was 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 prog kind of? Did you suddenly think, God, Chris Squire, I love him. 
Uh, I knew Chris Squire, but I used to I used to share a I used to live in a house with Steve Howe, and um, he used to bring these ideas and try and get me to play bass in you know seven eighteen time, uh, so he could noodle away over the tops. <laughs> <laughs> I bit, fell a bit short there. It wasn't for me, but I did know those guys and um, I knew what they were doing. But you do. I pre- I'm not sure. Do you know the story of the band that was called One Two Three that later became Clouds? No. Scottish organ trio. No. Mm. One Two Three. They became Clouds. Yeah. So what yeah, is this? What? They were. They were the band that invented prog rock. Did they? God, I didn't. Yeah, know. they came to London in '67 and got a residency at the Marquee. They were an organ, bass, and drums trio. And they were the first band ever doing fusion music with classical interludes, show that uh, virtuoso playing the entire thing. They were the blueprint for for the for Emerson Lake and Palmer or the Nice as they were then. All and yes, all of them. And there used to be in the in sitting in the front row, there'd be Rick Wakeman and David Bowie and everybody taking notes. The, the keyboard player's name was Billy Ritchie, and Billy Ritchie played on Bowie's demos and played on Life on Mars before they fell out, and he was replaced by Rick Wakeman. So you really, you can, if you, you should get my book Rough Notes because I write an extended bit about um, clouds, and you need to speak to 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 Billy Ritchie, and he'd be a great interview subject for you as well. Yes, because. If you look at the, there's a, there was a Sky documentary series out not long ago called Trailblazers of. Yes. And then there'd be different genres. And, and basically, on Trailblazers of Prog, they put Billy Ritchie and Rick Wakeman up together at the end. And he's now been recognized. But I have to say that I and a couple of, of other people have made it our business to get him his due recognition, you know. Uh, he played with Hendrix and all sorts of people. He was a, he's a virtuoso session guy, but he refused to play synthesizer, <laughs> right. which was one of his undoings. But but the oh, uh, the other thing is, they were actually managed by Brian Epstein, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that Brian Epstein. That one. Yes. That that one. Yeah, and. Um, they were just about to break and, 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 and went on their first American tour when he died. And they were stranded in America doing uh, club gigs for six months. That was when they were called One, Two, Three. They came back, signed up with Chrysalis, changed their name to Clouds. Uh, but by then, everybody who'd been, a, a friend of mine said that, that yes, and, and, and Emerson and things were weren't so much taking notes as making xeroxes <laughs> <laughs> so some of the songs like america yes were lifted lock stock and barrel from clouds the entire idea and arrangement mm-hmm. so uh in fact i did so- something terrible when i uh, when i was writing about clouds i said keith Keith Emerson should hang his head in shame, and that was 
only a few weeks before he did. Yes, <laughs> always happens, doesn't it? Always. I happens. just wondered if I, I just wondered if he'd read that or if it was just an awful coincidence. Let's hope it's the latter, because you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, but then yes, gosh. Anyway, so there's a couple of things for you to check out. <laughs> I will. I've, I've made. I'm making. But Billy no. Ritchie <coughs> is definitely and and, and 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 you know, buy my book. I need the royalties. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <clears throat> so. So as um, so, did you start to also, you know, experience the sort of the, the kind of the movement that was kind of the punk rock world of, you know, like what was happening with the Stooges and then um, obviously with Doctor Feelgood and and Ducks Yeah, Deluxe. I my 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 um, I lay fallow for about a year when when I was kicked out the Sutherland Brothers and Quiver. Mm. Um. Uh, which time the best band around was Dr. Feelgood. That, uh, and my, at the time um, I was roped into the attractions, my actual ambition was to um, play bass for the newly um, released Wilco Johnson. Right. I wanted to go and join Wilco's band, but... Um, but the attractions came up instead. Yes. Um, probably to my benefit, but... <laughs> yes, that was, but, that was probably... We don't yeah, really remember much. Probably a more, fortu more fortuitous avenue to explore, but, um, but yeah, I was aware of the... I wasn't going down the 100 Club. I wasn't following the clash around or anything like that. In fact, when I turned up to the audition for the attractions i was still wearing flares so oh nice <laughs> that yeah that and did you and did your paths cross with chris bedding by any chance in that time no no i've uh, a very very tenuous right connection yes. with him Fair enough. You can't. I just wonder. You know, we just have this vision that all you musicians just hang out together, cooking shared meals. Well, some the, you do get some very odd combinations, like you know, with Lemmy and Vin, Vince Taylor and Steve Howe and things. But he wasn't one of them whose orbit I came came into. You know. Did you say Vince Taylor? The Vince Taylor. Yeah, the Vince Taylor. Yeah. You see. I keep saying this, but you really need to read my book because I do. That, there was a house. There was a house in Chelsea. Yes, a kind of squat, if you like, where, where or we didn't pay rent, whichever. Yeah. <laughs> we, we where I lived, and on the ground floor was Steve Howe and his wife. Nice. And then further back on the ground floor was Vince Taylor. And then I was up in another room, and on on other rooms were were two guys called Dave Curtis and and, and Clive Muldoon, who wrote, uh, in fact, wrote uh, were songwriters. And um, I'd, the first session I ever did was for their album, and on one of their um, on their first album there was a song which had a chorus was quicker than a ray of light she beckons. For the call of thunder threatens everyone. It was wasn't called Ray of Light at the time, but it became a mega hit for Madonna. About how many years later? I don't know. Thirty years later. Nineteen ninety-eight, wasn't it? They found yeah, it was taken, but Madonna and William Orbit made it into a hit. But that was um, so. There's a few. I mean, I use I use that as the opening chapter because because. 
you couldn't have got a more disparate group of people than than me. No. Um, people that a folk duo that ended up writing a hit for a disco diva, the greatest English rock and roll singer probably of all time, probably better than Cliff, you know pre Cliff Richard and and then and then a virtuoso prog guitarist. Well, absolutely, and I'm sure he's all in the same all in the same house at the same time. If only so, we if only we got pictures of that house and you lot. Well, if yeah, yeah, if only, yeah. If only. I guess. It would have been I guess, yeah. It would have been fascinating to see your interior design as well as, you know, your oh, cooking. Well, the thing was the, the 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 band that lived in that house before we were in it was a band called Family. Oh right, blimey! Right, and they'd they'd um, decorated the entire interior of the house with murals while they were tripping. No, so it was like the psychedelic the Kool Aid acid bus, you know. Yes, we just had to have Tom that, Tom Wolf walking about. And exactly, be... all that, yeah, all that kind of nonsense. Nonsense with with LSD, which is great. The bats, the bats. Anyway, yeah. let's not go to the bats. But in oh God, oh yeah, Vince Taylor. Okay, look, you're going to have to just give me a quick update on this because obviously Vince Taylor is kind of the the uh, you know David Bowie borrowed quite. Well, yeah, he was. He was well. He wasn't in great shape because you know he was. Um... Had, was he Jesus by then? Yeah. Oh, good. Well, he was. He was post Jesus, but he wasn't back to the world he was um you know the story he was in somebody gave him what he thought was speed some leapers because he was like the johnny the template for johnny halliday yes. you know like gene vincent with the leather suit and everything and apparently i know people who who were in his band who said you wouldn't have ever seen anything like him you know when he was on yeah. he was um he walked into a Walked into a nightclub with Bridget Bardo on his arm and ordered a bottle of champagne for every table. <laughs> that, that kind of guy. But then somebody gave him what he thought was speed and turned out to be acid. And the next day he went on stage in white robes and thinking he was Jesus, as you, as you say. When I saw him, he was in a very, very delicate condition. He used to stay in his room all day and only pop out at night when a, if there was somebody around at three in the morning. He used to wear all black, but his mattress had burst, so he was all white covered, all black covered in white feathers, mm. like a home pride flower grader. No. And the, the last time I saw him, he was going up home to his mother's with a with a carrier bag with a little kitten in it. Oh. Um, very, very, yeah. But later on he got himself together and actually became an aircraft mechanic in Switzerland. Mm. And and he said, he, he lived quite a few more years and said, um, he said um, they were the happiest days of his life. Blimey. So there you go. That's just extraordinary. So, uh, yeah, because I know I listened to an interview with his his son once talking about him and just saying... Yeah, kind of tricky childhood, as you would imagine. Yeah. So, you know, how come, you know, like obviously with Vince and also there was um, Peter Green and Sid Barrett. I mean, yeah, they they were the ones who got incredibly damaged with acid, yeah. whereas people from your Hawkwind to Lemmy to most people in the 60s, obviously they navigated that without... Um, I, think, I think with Sid Barrett and Peter Green, they didn't need 
anything to open the windows. I think their windows were already open. They were virtually, I think Peter Green was virtually channeling music anyway. Right. I think he was the most gifted musician I've ever heard, and I still do, you know. There's just nobody can reach the depths of soulfulness that he does. Um, um, Sid Barrett was certainly some kind of, you know, some kind of innovative genius, but um, he didn't come back. No, and that's that is you know incredibly. It's kind of sobering, but let's let's face yeah. it. Yeah, but then there were, yeah. But then you know. Yeah. But Lenny talks but, about it as if he was just you know, down in Smarties really, and I just thought, wow, how does he? But perhaps his complexity of Lenny is not quite on the same. It's way. to do, yeah, resilient psyches. How I think some, you know. Some some people don't need to, as I say, are already, if anything, you know, too open. Yes, I would imagine. Yeah, it's not like they needed the cobwebs blowing away. <laughs> they didn't. But then, because um, I can't remember how it linked, but I thought I mustn't say it because we would jump forward to 1977. Because when Elvis done his first album, My My Aim is True, this is with the band Clover, which featured Howie, Huey Lewis and the News. Huey Lewis, yeah. So that happened. But then was it the case that they... The Stiff Records had printed up lots of badges saying Elvis is a stiff, and then a week later Elvis Presley yeah, died. Was, yeah. Is that a true story, or did I just I make think that? it? I think it probably is. Elvis is a stiff artist. I don't know. I, I, what I do remember is that um, see, Clover was one of the bands I used to listen to when I, when Quiver was on the go. They were we were probably trying to sound like Clover, if anything. Yes, and um, but yeah. I remember that we had two double-page center spread features in the Daily Mail and the Daily Express lined up for our Elvis for the day that Presley died, and ours got cancelled. So we weren't too kindly disposed towards the former King of Rock. No. Um, Because that was our big break. It didn't really affect things as it happened, but, you know... That was the, what I remember around that, around that time. And how did you get the gig with um, Elvis Number Two? I did the I did the I did an audition. I answered an ad in the Melody Maker. Nice. And the did... proverbial, the proverbial route to stardom. The classic. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yes. um, I don't think he wanted. He, you know, he, he there's a story. He didn't. He didn't want. He nearly didn't even let me do the audition because I said my favourite band was Steely Dan. Um, he wanted people that couldn't play. Right. Like Sid, Sid Vicious to be punk. Wanted to be much more punk. You know, he was a, a, a Joe Strummer wannabe at the time. And I thought that wasn't possibly the best move for an up-and-coming um, singer-songwriter, you know, songwriter. It's limited. Wouldn't show wouldn't showcase his songs the best. People that were musically illiterate. So, um, and of course, my my, you know, previous career, I'd already I was already kind of a seasoned musician by that point. So, but Pete Thomas um, swung it. You know, um, yeah. said if you don't get this guy, you're mad. And there so, you go. But um, Pete Thomas was was a big fan of Quiver and stuff, so 
So and Jake Riviera had managed the band that Pete Thomas was in previously. So, um, so between them they persuaded him, and I had my trousers taken in and narrowed, so everything was all right. Yeah, that's good. Good, you need to, you, can't, you can't be walking around in flares in '77. You can't could you? be walking around looking like Dennis Waterman in a punk band. Or, or oh yes, or Rod Stewart doing his kind of um, yeah, classic yeah. number one it's, during Jubilee Week. Beautiful. His dotage. I know, beautiful. He looked lovely. But then, how did the you know when you sort of played on that the the album with with Pete, Steve, and Elvis this year's mm. model? Did you mm. feel that there was something quite special happening? Did you think mm, this is this is better than what we well, what you've done before? Did you feel yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, exponentially better. Yeah, I knew we were in a proper band. You know, we did a week's rehearsal in Cornwall when we got together. Uh, and then we did a, a gig at the local village hall and all that stiff crowd came down from London with Jake Riviera. And he said he was a bit like that character that Tom Hanks plays in that film. You know, that thing you do, run on, run on, wear shades, all that business. He was that kind of manager. <laughs> uh, and... Um, he came down. He said, "Well, lads, you've got to what you do. oh, it's a world class band, <laughs> just, yeah." So, and that was very much the feeling, very much the feeling. Yeah, you know, that kind of yeah. And driving it, along, I remember driving along in a convertible in near Marina del Rey in L.A. We, we were on the, on our first American tour, and a car with girls came pulled up alongside, and Pete Thomas stood up and he goes, "That's us on the radio. That's us." <laughs> and you said, "That's straight out of one of those films, isn't it?" It yeah. is, and you must have felt like yeah. you're such a cool drummer. <laughs> yeah. Yes, because most bands, okay, <clears throat> I've interviewed, they have a five-year narrative, and mm. and especially this 80s thing, yeah, <clears throat> you know, they get together, they have the honeymoon period, you know, John Peel plays the single, then they get this John Peel session, the first album, things are going mm. generally quite good, then the second album, things are a bit tricky, and if anybody ever does America, they always come back and say, and that was the end of the band. By the third album, they just want to kill each other. But you, in that period, mm. I mean... Was it ten albums in almost ten years or eight? Yeah, about that. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's yeah. kind of that's longer than the Beatles, nearly, isn't it? I mean, yeah, and none of them, none of them, the same. No, I mean, it's um, as a creative artist, that must have been. That's quite a leading question, isn't it? Um, yeah, <laughs> it is. Was it exciting? Well, I think you've got to. I think you've got to remember that the songs weren't always. Uh, earmarked for a particular genre. The yes. songs were songs. If you listen to people's demos, they're often very much like demos. There's a guy with an acoustic guitar and a tune and some lyrics, but turning that into a record is um, where the band comes in. Yes, you know. And um, but you must so, you, you must think oh that is quite a that's a good line that's a good melody that's oh yeah 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 I mean they were proper it was nice getting back to three minute songs after the prog you know era yeah absolutely the pink the Pink Floyd yes Genesis kind of thing that was the whole 
not just punk, but new wave, you know, that was the new wave ethos. And it was also quite an, in, it was an interesting time because punk had quickly got boring. And I know a few punk mm. bands who just hated it because they were there right at the beginning. And then they one day, you know, started seeing their audience and they all looked like Sid Vicious. And they thought, I don't even want to mm. go on stage to this crowd. Anymore. No, no, I, no, the, no. Yeah. It kind of got tedious. Very I don't quick. think the, the Pistols were really perceived as a punk band, were they, by the, by the, the um, first wave? Probably not, no, no. But then you came along and it was kind of a, you know, I mean, there was Joe Jackson, wasn't there? And and, yeah. then, and there was all that spiky kind of post-punk stuff like Wire and the Nightingales and Public Image Limited and um, Gang of Four. But you, you know, you, you sort of, you don't really fit in any particular genre, no. do you? I mean, it's kind of, no. you're out of the whole kind of like, let's put you into this bracket or put you into that bracket. Well, we were almost... I mean, some of it was always almost like pastiche, wasn't it? If you listen to this year's modelled as the Who track, and uh, and and the, and you know, and the Stones track, and the <laughs> well, not quite like that, but but the but some, you know, we went from we went from being a beat group to being a classic pop group to being a um, a, a soul a soul, you know. a Motown stacks band to being a country music to being you know um sort of i don't know some of it, some of it was on it it was only ten years after the the uh, the event but some of it's almost retro at the just, you know at the time isn't it some of what we did was almost like and it was a nod back to the model for this year's model's aftermath. Right, the Stones record that was the template, you know. And we generally had, at some point, except the way we kept going, as you described earlier, and made and made that many albums was we'd go away and rehearse an album, then we'd get to the studio and completely um, deconstruct the song, in in uh, improvise it. Um, for instance, B movie sounded like Blondie. Yes. When it, when it was first started, and that became a like almost like a jazz thing. Um, um, some of the songs were like six eight ballads that became like funk songs. If you listen to "Man Out of Time" on um, Imperial Bedroom, topping and tailing that song, there's a kind of Neanderthal thrash, which is what it was like to start with, and it ends up being like this stately galleon in between. But those, those, all those songs were completely different at rehearsal, and then somebody would just jam something in the studio, and we'd all have to fall in with it. Yes, and which fall was in. good at that point. It's you like, did. Mm. And were you a bit amazed just as you were trucking through the decade or the next decade with Get Happy? You you whack out an incredible twenty track album, don't you? Mm. Which is like, did you think? Some of them only a minute or two long. Though. They are short, but at the same time, yeah. did it, it? I mean, did you sort of think this is quite a lot on one album? Do you you know should we space this out or was it just like you're on a mission? Well, there was more stuff coming. You there, know. Was more, there was more. Was was Elvis like this kind of like? My God, what's he done today? Oh, he's done another album. Was it a bit like that? Um, do you know what? I think we kind of took it for granted that there was just this continual flow of songs. <laughs> <laughs> it's only in retrospect you think, hmm, yeah, 
I wonder if I could do. I wonder if I could do that. You yeah. know, I wonder if I could write the book every two months or what the equivalent is. Yes. Well, when you got to Almost Blue and you sat down in the studio for that one, did you yeah. feel what was the atmosphere and the feeling of like, oh yeah, let's let's put a country album out because we really want a country. Mm, no, it wasn't so much that. I think. Um, I don't know if that I I don't think it was because there weren't the songs there that we did them covers, but I think it was very much the frame of mind that himself was in. You know, he was having. Uh, I think he kind of identified with situations to stimulate the creativity, but also it worked in a reciprocal arrangement. I he was drinking a lot and falling out with his wife, so he decided to do a country album about drinking a lot and falling out with your wife and things. But I don't know which is the cart and which is the horse, you know? Nice. Um, um But uh, it wasn't... That was fairly strained because we had an outside producer who was very, very famous in Nashville yes. for producing, you know, A-list stars and everything. And I changed one chord in a Hank Williams song and I, I thought he was going to pull out a gun and shoot me. <laughs> because literally that week, actually, in a bar on, on Broadway in Nashville... Somebody got shot for not knowing a Hank Williams song. Somebody pulled out a gun and shot the singer in this bar. And I thought, I'd changed the chord to this Hank Williams song. And I thought, Jesus, this is like, it's like sacrilege or something, you know. (laughs) These are, it's holy writ or whatever. Um, It's not just a song, (laughs) you know, it's their, it's their credo or whatever. Um, so, yeah, you, so you, you must have had you must have had a bit of a sweat on after that. Well, I just, I just, I mean, we changed the arrangement anyway. But he was, he was a humorless bastard. Was the producer anyway? You know, um, the first thing he said to me was, "What's black and white and can't turn round in an elevator?" And I said, "Go on." He said, "A nun with a javelin through her head." So I thought, okay, this is. This is <laughs> This is him. But Elvis was pretty... I, I, uh, it's in the book. I keep saying that because it is. But It is. I, I took... Uh, I mean, there was a point where I was usually the one to call him out, right? I was the shop steward. If there was any calling out to be done, it was me, not the other two. And I had to basically grab a hold of him and said, what, you know, what are you doing? You know, because he was sort of teetering on going over yes i think with drinking and everything right so it's his lifestyle uh, you know he was he was it was getting to um getting to that hank williams point where he might have been found in the back of a car sort of thing but um yes Yes. so i you know i had to do the dirty deed and and make myself unpopular by being cruel to be kind sort of thing but um Anyway, we survived all that, and um, the record came out, and so on, and we went, and on we went. Yeah. Yes, because um, just briefly though, the, I remember the the album Punch the Clock that came out, which was a big production number with Clive mm. Clive, Clive Langer, Langer and mm. dear old Alan Winstanley. Winstanley. Did you enjoy that that particular 
recording process? Because that definitely that, that was yeah. shiny, wasn't it? That production very shiny. But I mean, we we went into the studio to do that, and um, Clive said, "Oh, there's too many miserable songs. Can you do something a bit more upbeat? You know." And so he just went away and wrote four pop songs, but um, I don't know which they were. But there are there are a couple of really good moments on that album with shipbuilding and things, yes. uh, which is one of the best tracks we ever did. But but um, he, he he hated it, you know. He said, oh it's, "Oh, it's too glossy. It's the sound of the moment and blah." But that was the whole bloody point of hiring. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, know, I mean, I thought. I mean, with that one. Punch the punch the clock. It was, I mean, lyrically there were some brilliant lines like "Let them talk every day." I write the book, and also I thought "Pills and Soap" and "Mouth Almighty" were good. Yeah, I mean, the the, um, the follow up yeah. though, the follow up. It's not the worst album we've ever done by any means. No, but the follow up no. though, that's we were about to do the next the worst yeah, album we've ever okay. done. Yeah, <laughs> okay, I'm glad because that that was kind of one that you kind of because you could stick with the same producer, but that was that wasn't good, was it? Um, I don't know what the idea of of that was. I don't know what why um that was that was when the well was a little bit parched, wasn't it? it on was, Goodbye, Cruel World. Oh, it was very parched. <laughs> it was neither fish nor fowl, no. and not much fun to play. I mean, I was I used to walk round because we did it in Notting Hill. I used to walk round Portobello Road and. And Clive Langer came up to me and, and said, you know, what do you think? Shall we carry on with it? That's always not my call, is it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no. But yeah, then, so. but then as, as the 80s progressed, there was the classic album, Blood and Chocolate, which has some songs on it which are absolutely horrendous. Um, hor- not hor- was an att- yeah, I think that was an attempt to get back to where we once belonged to a degree but yes. um, that was difficult because it was all recorded live in with one mic kind of thing in the in the studio like the old um phil specter thing so there was absolutely no possibility of overdubbing or correcting mistakes or anything and and that was um that was a pretty tense record that was especially that uh psychotic ballad i want you i want you where, where himself basically spent um, most of the day winding everybody up like as if we were method actors, you know, <laughs> till we had to feel like we wanted to kill him before we did the take. <laughs> so um, that's that's quite hard. But before, oh yeah, that's what I was going to say. Because I came to see you playing live in the early '80s, and you had yeah. the Pogues supporting you, and yeah. um, that must have been one rock and roll tour. Can you remember much about it? I can remember. I can remember. I was coming up to me and saying, "Have you seen the bass player in the Pogue? She's right up your street, just your type." Because <laughs> <laughs> she was this cat, Colleen, Colleen, Irish girl, and um, we went up to the Pogue's dressing room, and Kathleen, Caitlin had, had, had just finished. Um, shaving her head with a rusty razor blade so she was a, looked like a threadbare teddy with nicks all over her scalp and i thought hmm right my type eh <laughs> <laughs> anyway before long um they were an item so yes and romance yeah, progressed they were an they were an item and and um and uh, i got this 
death-defying stare, basically saying, you say anything about this and you're dead, kind of look. So then we went on, but it was, from then on, it was kind of um, spinal tap, really. Roddy, you know? did you have some great moments? Well, it was the, it was the, it was the, it was the lead singer's missus upset the dynamic, you know, it was the Yoko Ono spinal tap syndrome, I, I'm, I would say. I mean, years later, I've just written some more memoirs and I address it all a bit, really. It, we never fell out about me writing a book or anything like that. That's just nonsense. That was just, that's just me trying to generate sales. That yes. was nothing to do with it. But, um, but um, she had, she, her mantra was, you know, everybody else is fucked. Thank goodness I'm all right. And she said that literally to in an interview to a Irish newspaper. So I'm not slandering her. No. And she went to the Priory in the end because she was a depressive and an alcoholic. But at the time, he was a like it was a bit of a Harry and Meghan thing. She could do no wrong, you know. Yes. And um, so he supported her all the time at the expense of the band. Yes. She got Jake Reeve, She got Jake, his manager of twenty years, fired. Then other people went, you know. She called. She called James Burton an old man, <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know. And I knew I was in the firing line. And sure enough, that's, you know. But I was. I hate. You know. I'd lost interest in the material at that point. I hated that song, "Poor Fractured Atlas," a sort of a feminist anthem where it was obvious where the, you know, where that was from, yes. and. Um, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, songwriters were having their lyrics vetted by their other half, and I mean, serious songwriters like David Gilmore and Glenn Tilbrook and Elvis Costello. So, so um, that pretty much finished me off, really. Yes. So when um, you when you didn't get the call, particularly for the next album, Spike, did you feel? Had you just had enough by then? Um, well, we. I did kind of, I did kind of get the call, but I didn't take the call. If you see, when he rang up, he rang rang up on Christmas Day, which is you speak to everybody on Christmas Day, <laughs> and uh, my wife answered the phone and said, "Elvis, he wants to speak to you," and I said, "Tell him I'm busy." <laughs> mm. So. Um, so that never happened, but it was only Mitchell Froome acting as a go-between that finally, you know, um, got the second instalment underway. Um, yes, but how come, I mean, this is where it all becomes fascinating, because Susan Vega appears in everyone's yeah. life, doesn't she? And she's there in the 80s, and she's... she, she it was the beginning of the 90s I worked with her. Yeah, so you took yeah. over Michael's place, didn't you? I, Mitchell, yeah, Mitchell Froome. No, um, Michael. Yeah, went, um, it, Michael was the no. basis for her, wasn't he? Michael Viz. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I did on on the albums. Yeah, she used to do gigs with a bass player, who's one of my Facebook friends actually. But um, but um, I got roped in to doing the the record with Pete, you know, as a rhythm section. Yes. 
and Jerry Marotta from, I don't know, is he in Toto or someone like that? Um, or is that his brother? Anyway, he's um, he's another session luminary. And, um, and um, yeah, yeah, I got... Uh, yeah, Pete, Pete and I were always we did lots of sessions. We did we were doing Tasman Archer at the same time as well. Oh, and, um, sleeping satellite. Sleeping satellite, and we were doing our uh, crikey old. We we were we did all sorts of things. Were yeah. you a bit like um, Fleetwood Mac and McVie? What do you mean? We went out as a rhythm section. Yeah, you kind of you thought, look, you've got these two guys in. The band, the, yeah, we the... tended to go. We tended to do, do. I think half of my sessions were with Pete, and the other half with some other drummer. You know. Yes. Um, so when I you did worked, some I was going to say sessions when you... with Jim Jim Keltner and 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 Mickey Waller and and um, and uh, Mel, what's his name from Simple Minds? Oh yeah, it's got you. So when you did mm. you, with with Suzanne Vega, you you sort of stepped into that slot in the in the nineties, and you recorded Nine Objects of Desire, didn't you? And the previous one, ninety nine point nine degrees Fahrenheit. Yes. Did that um, did that feel like a relief to have stepped away? I from... love playing. I love doing those records. I thought she's. I think she's a great songwriter. I love her guitar playing, her singing, and her songwriting, and her, and as a person. Yes. You know? He's got no edge to her at all, and Mitchell's a good... No, they were very, very enjoyable records to do, both of them. Yeah, because I went Absolutely. to see her when she was touring the Nine Objects. Did you tour... I know Pete was on drums. Were you on bass on that gig? Oh, that... No, I did. I only ever did one live performance with her. Um, um, that was like about three or four songs without a drummer. Right. So... Um, because I was literally, because I was in town to do a video with her yes. at the same time, so I just did a, I just did the gig as well. Yes. So, mm. so obviously Mitchell was the um, the man to bring you back to brutal youth with Elvis in nineteen. 19- That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. so what was did you? What was the sort of the moment like when you sort of went, oh, Elvis, how's life? What the first time I saw him? Yes. Um, can't, can't remember the um, exact moment we uh, um, the first moment, but uh, it was all very jolly. I mean, he bought me a birthday present that year, and so on, and <laughs> and um, it was where we got it worked really well for a couple of years, and then it just went a bit sour with um, you know. I mean, Jake got sacked very soon after I jo- rejoined the band, right? You know. So um yeah did you did you feel that with those albums the two you did in the 90s followed by all this useless booty beauty did you feel that it wasn't kind of the magic that it had felt in the late 70s and that early 80s period bits of well I didn't play on the whole of brutal youth some of it's nick low so a couple of tracks two or three I don't know many but I, I you know I did I remember when we did there's did one song on um Brutal Youth and there's a sort of a bit where the band drops everything drops out for two seconds and then everything comes in bang on the beat. 
bang on the money, you know. Um, even Mitchell jumped at me. He said that's a band that's only ha- that can only happen with a band that's played together for twenty years, you know. Yeah. So we picked up straight away. That that instinctively we could play together again straight away, and we did some great gigs that year. We did a fantastic gig um, at Glastonbury in '94. Except Elvis hated it. Said it was like being strapped to the wings of a 747, you know, because he was um, he was all string quartetted up then. Wasn't oh, he? that was bad. Because you know, I I'd, I'd seen you performing at Glastonbury probably the late '80s, and yeah. and my memory of that was that. Elvis had done a sort of a small solo bit, and then the curtains... That's right, and then the curtains went back, yeah. And you yeah. rocked in. And I do remember getting your first book, and I remember a line in it where you said, oh, God, he's waving his hands behind his back. As oh, if yeah, to telling us to shut up, yeah. Shut up. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, I did read your yeah. book, didn't I? Yeah. Well, I that's re- one of them. That's the first one, isn't it? Yeah, see, I've got all... Yeah, anyway, sorry. You've got to, re- you've got to re- read Rough Notes. I need, to, you need to read. I need to read Rough yeah. Notes. So um, yeah. th- with those moments that the audience don't see, but obviously the musicians yeah. see, yeah. Do, you, do you want to... You know, I remember there was a moment, I think it was the Eagles when they were doing one of their last tours before they broke yeah. up. They would sort of mutter into each other, like when the when the last song plays, I'm going to have it, I'm going to kill you, and they were literally, yeah, yeah. and they I've were sort of, story, they were yeah. shuffling to, and various members were shuffling to the edge of the stage and literally threw the guitar down and just ran for it because they knew it was going to yeah. get bloody. Did you have yeah. moments where you could have just in the gig smacked someone? We never had, we never had, um, we never had a physical fight, any of us. Good. That's we. No. 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 In fact, we never really. Had um, a shout up, you know. We've never really had a full blown row ever. I don't think there was moments of tension, but they, you know, not no, no kind of explosions. Yes. Hmm. And did you feel that at times? I remember there was a documentary. I can't remember which is the band. Oh, it was uh, it was the police, and they said they needed band therapy. Did you ever feel that band therapy could have been a useful thing? No. No, no, that, that that's not that's not the. Elvis one once went, I was having terrible pains in his back and shoulders and things, and I said, "What do you need to go and see a Alexander teacher or somebody you know who does structural integration?" Because I did did quite a lot of that bodywork stuff back in the day, because I was doing martial arts and all sorts, so I was kind of interested in more physical things, as you know. And I said, "Go and see an Alexander teacher; he'll straighten you out." And and uh, he came back, and I said, "Well, how did it go?" He, he, Elvis said, "Well, you told me I was too wound up." I said, "Well, you are." <laughs> he said, "Yeah, but it's my job to get wound up." <laughs> so there you go. You know what can you say to that? It, 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 it's um, yeah. If you don't get wound up, you'd be you'd be singing songs like. Al Stewart, you know. Yes, about the cats and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, about like that. cats and things, yeah. <laughs> cats and time. But then, do yeah. you can you remember the last time you were with Elvis and, and the attractions? Was that in Japan? Yeah, I can remember the last gig, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. Did you know yeah. that was going to be the last time? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, oh no, I was, I was sat long before the end of the tour, but I just thought, well, 
I'm not that mean. I'm not going to just go get on a plane and leave them. I'll just finish it off, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I did. And that was uh, it. But yeah, I was, uh, but, um, Cause I had what? an odd phone, I had an odd phone call a, a, a while later. Cause, you know, I was, cause I mean, uh, the last word he ever said to me was whenever, right? As if to say, whenever, what's that mean? When I'll see you, whenever I see you kind mm. of thing. Not never, whenever. Anyway, I got a, I did get a phone call while from Pete, and I said, "Oh, what's?" Because he used to tell me all the things that Tot was doing. You know, he was my informant on the inside. Said, "No, oh, you never guess what she's done this week and stuff." You know, <laughs> she tried to throw a stool into the audience from on the stage or whatever, and um, and uh, I said, "What are you up to?" He said, "Well, we're looking for a bass player, but I'm very dim on these sorts of hints." And uh, and I said I didn't say oh I didn't say well you got anyone in mind I just said oh well good luck with that <laughs> <laughs> and I mean I did I, it's in the book but I was uh, David Gilmore once said that the Pink Floyd were looking for a bass player and I said pretty much the same thing <laughs> and he actually meant was I interested in joining Pink Floyd so that Roger Waters could become an MC and use his megaphone and his gong, whatever, you know. Yes. So, um, but who knows what would have happened there. I mean, I, I don't think I would have ended up with a fleet of Ferraris like Nick Mason. I think that I'd have just been on wages. Like yes. all, even Rick Wright was on wages, wasn't he, when he came back? Was he? Well, they, yeah, they, they yeah when, he re, when he went back, he wasn't a full member again. Yeah, the solicitor had a word, didn't they? Did mm. you, so then, how's, you know, after that, what was the rest of, because you've written books on Bruce Lee, haven't you? Yeah, and yeah. your other big passion. But I was, I was doing, um, in, in, in the hiatus be, between Attractions 1 and Attractions 2, I was doing Kung Fu, you know, three or four times a week, three or four hours a day. So, and then that's when I was, and also I was doing, I was to and froing between London and Los Angeles doing session work and yes. New York, um, in Suzanne Vega's case or Woodstock, and um, and so uh, you know I was I was travelling around researching the book and and doing sessions and when I was back in England training and things so. I was um, that was a different emphasis. Yes, and how did Bruce Bruce Lee come to be part of your life? Because my childhood, I can you know we can all remember. Because I was I was mugged one day, and I did I, I was very pissed off, and I thought I'm going to go and learn how to defend myself. Yes, and uh, I went and signed up for the for the lessons, and rather than being someone who saw Bruce Lee and signed up for the lessons, I signed up for the lessons and then got into Bruce Lee. Uh, by my teacher showing me, you know, clips where he, he'd edited the films down, so we just got to the serious stuff without yes. all the all the plot development and romance. And he was just telling me what the, you know, giving me an insight into the uh, techniques involved and so forth. And um, and so 
I thought, well, I know nothing about Bruce Lee. I'll write a book about him, not because I know nothing, but because other people know nothing. And if I do the research and and eventually know, you know, what there is to know about him, then I'll be able to t- tell everybody else as well, because I thought it was worth worth doing. Yes. And did you, I mean, obviously, the death of Bruce Lee has always been one of the great mysteries. What did your um, conclusion of that? Perfect storm combination of many factors. Um, Overwork, weight loss, intrinsic weakness in the brain tissue, um, in eating cannabis, um, various things, you know, all together. uh, a typhoon, um, hot and heat, working in a dubbing room while there was a typhoon going on, all sorts of things. Um, um, but it wasn't one thing in particular. Yes. I don't think. It's just burnout. Yeah. God, it's. Um, I mean, it was. And what made him? I mean, such a unique kind of person because my you know my memory is just kind he was of... the best at, he was the the best at what he was the first and best at what he does you know he's um um he brought he brought it he was the first to synthesize all the martial arts into one kind of core system and to also bring the martial arts from the east to the west and to popularize them at, at the right time in film um to be you know i mean he's um i it's no one's ever been able to the people have come close but i mean when you're the first you know you're um how many how many great footballers have there been maybe five or six you know pele maradona ronaldo messi johan cruyff yes johan cruyff yeah that's it, and then you start thinking, um, you know. But he was Hendrix, you know, George Best. I don't know. But but he was um, he was certainly the um, yeah. Nobody'd ever done what he did because he 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 was. I I called him the most significant person in the martial arts since Body Dharma took the martial arts from India to China to the Shaolin Temple. Mm. He took them from the Shaolin Temple to Hollywood, and to and to schools all over the world. You know. Yes. Um, and um, yeah. The man. Yes. Well, it must have been an amazing project to sort of do. Does that mean that you you're now in that that's that time of life where where you're sort of got any more projects kind of on the horizon? I'm, I'm working on four books at the moment. I'm doing. Um, I've just done a, an illustrated Bruce Lee biography, with like 250 colour pictures in it. Um, I did Tyson Fury's biography not long ago, and I'm waiting to update that as soon as he fights Anthony Joshua. Yeah. I've written a third volume of memoir, which which you'll have to hurry up and read the second one because the third one will be out at some point, which is a more more of a in, you know, which goes deeper into like the Little Richard story and things, but also goes into Bruce Lee stuff as well. Yes. And uh, what I did in the in the years in between 
Attractions 1 and Attractions 2. And I've actually just finishing my first novel, my first um, fiction writing, which is the first time I've done that. Oh, my God. Yeah. You have been. So lockdown was was a time for you to literally... Yeah, well, I, lockdown didn't change me a great deal, to be honest. I just sit in front of my computer working and go out to for a wander every so often, you know, into the woods or the fields. And, and, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't... Uh, I don't go down the pub or whatever. It, it slowed me down a bit, but... It, it didn't really stop the way I work. And plus, book sales and record streaming has gone up in lockdown, if anything, rather than down. Yes, I know everyone's just been at home hitting buy, yeah. buy. Yeah, buy and all, buy his book. I'll listen to the, you know, listen to the records again or whatever. Absolutely. No, everyone's mm. been doing it. So, so mm. your record, so God. So what was the book that I read? Your first one was called... Was it a big wheel, was it? Yeah, big wheel. And, yeah. and the second one is Rough Notes. Second one, the music one, is rough notes. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one we need. To, I need to get now. You don't need I? that at the moment, but then the next one goes delves deeper. It goes there. Now I remember just just almost lastly when you were doing that gig in about eighty three with the Pogues. I remember your mm. ba you occasionally had to kick your bass or some kick it. or not the bass but the speaker because there was lots of oh. and I remember Elvis going oh our equipment's not doing very good. I mean did you, did you often have to kick your equipment to keep? No, it? I probably played the wrong note and kicked the amp to make it sound like it was the amp's fault. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, or maybe I was just deciding to be punk because we were in a, we we had a punk band with us, and I thought, well, I'll have to be a bit punk as well. Yes, yeah. But that was one of the few gigs where the crowd was such a crush. It was. I just remember being slightly. Where was it? The where, UEA where, where, Norwich. This was there. All right, and I remember. It's very. It's a low stage. It's a big square room with two pillars yes. in front of the stage, isn't it? Not the best places to put, but but I just yeah. remember being quite physically crushed and feeling a little bit yeah. like this is quite heavy you know it was quite the yeah. the, the the passion from the crowd was yeah. just i can just remember it very well but obviously you know coupled with the with the pogues as well it was quite a memorable night really because yeah. i don't think they'd even got their first album out by then i don't think they were like uh, a huge force at that time were they no no one they had a clue they were probably just on their first tour or something no they hadn't been out of London and Spider was still mm. hitting his head with a beer tray at that stage with so, the tin um, tray the tin tray yeah. gimmick and I think no one was yeah. no one was interested yeah. at all in them so with so with that in mind, well, vaguely, I mean, if there was something that you could have said to your 16, 18 year old self starting out would, what, what sort of words of wisdom I'd say it's your it's your round, son. <laughs> <laughs> Was there anything you would... What can you say? You just say, I'd say what I said to myself at the time, just keep going, you know? Yes. Keep going. Whatever it is, follow your nose. Follow yeah. your bliss, as jo Joseph Campbell says. Joseph Campbell. Follow, yeah. Yes. The young Mm. Follow your bliss was one of his. Follow the bliss. Yeah. Um, follow your bliss. That's quite nice, actually. Follow your bliss. And if you, I mean, is it the case that you know you've got any more recording or or um? What coming up? Yeah. 
Well, you know they've re-released this year's model with Spanish singers, don't oh, you? Oh, yes, I've heard about Spanish that. Spanish model, yeah. So, I mean, I've got a new record out without having to do any work. Which is <laughs> nice, yes. But, I mean, I'm, uh, yeah, I get... Uh, I do get approached regularly for session work, but I'm as I'm a technophobe and I'm not going to start setting up uh, Pro Tools and all this thing, you know, to and Zoom and everything to start doing sessions. I'll go to a studio or get a friend of mine to do it if it's worthwhile. But um, but uh, which I've done in the past, but I haven't done anything. Hugely high profile. Yes, that's fair enough. But anyway, you got books. I mean, hmm? You got books coming out, so that's that's enough, mm, isn't it? It's bo- books is the thing at the moment. But I do. I was thinking that I've got, I've got a signature model guitar and things. You know, which I promote from time to time on YouTube and things. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm not averse to to doing. But the thing is, every time I pick up a guitar now, I think, God, that's so heavy. No wonder it took me three years to get my left shoulder back in shape, you know. <laughs> yes. And what about, I was going to say, what's your hearing like? Is that okay? Is My hearing? Yeah. I've lost a, I've lost a fair bit of top end. Right. Um, tra- 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 yeah, um, it's, it's okay. I haven't got tinnitus or anything, but... Um, when I'm watching films on TV, the voices tend to sound muffled, but it's not a unique complaint, is it? I mean, that tends to be the case anyway. Yeah, and it's too dark. Everyone sounds like Steven Seagal, <laughs> muttering away. I know, it's too much, really. It's not yeah, good. so um, I tend to have the subtitles on quite a bit uh, on the TV, and I've also stuffed, stuffed a sponge down the uh, subwoofer. <laughs> so I can get a bit more top out of it. Nice, that's all good. And if there was one, you know, what was, you know, I know this is probably a bit boring, but what one or two records were you proudest of, proudest of that you played on? What with 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 anybody? With or? anyone, yes. If you well, if the, the the Suzanne Baker albums I like, I like this year's model. I like Get Happy. I like Imperial Bedroom. They're the three good albums and then a couple of them like trust and blood and chocolate and punch a clock sort of get a get a, a you know not an a star but a, a b plus you yeah. know and then some of them like the country record and and, oh, and good and um brutal youth of the next tier down and then Goodbye, Cruel World, and all this useless beauty. I can take or leave. Yes, probably leave. No, it's, probably it's, what most listeners would say. Yeah, <clears throat> well, it's great. I love, I do love Suzanne Vegas. I'm pleased you had such a nice time with her. Yeah, yeah. She's a fine person, and so down to earth. She's sort of. Yeah, well, I, I did a record with a guy called Tony O'K, who's an LA songwriter. I don't even know if it came out, but that had Jim Keltner on drums, Mark Rebo on guitar, and Booker T on keyboards, and me. And that was pretty good. And um, But I don't know if it ever saw the light of day. I did some really good stuff on that. Mm-hmm. Very strange. 
It's, mm. it's, it's all very good. And you might be able to find it on YouTube, I don't know. These things sometimes um, just appear, don't they? They just disappear. Lost to the mist of time. And that, dear listener, if you're still with it, well done. You need a medal. Was me in conversation with Bruce Thomas from The Attractions. This, though, has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Make it nice and pleasant. Otherwise, you know, just really don't bother. Um, and also, all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. That's it. That's life. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.